Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. We have an amazing hour of science coming up for you. Today is the day we are doing our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. For those of you who have listened to the program before, you'll know that this means that over the next half an hour or so, we will be interviewing 20 PhD students from around the world. And I mean that literally because they are from all over the place today. We have uh, people in Canada, people in Greece, people in even people in Tasmania, uh, quite a few of them today, and a few people in Melbourne. Some of them are going to be in the studio and fear not. I ratted them like you wouldn't believe in the foyer earlier to make sure we were all safe, and the rest will all be on Zoom. So we're going to get straight into it. And first up on the line is Alistair Fortune from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research at the University of Tasmania. Good morning, Alistair. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you look at the genetics behind high-incidence multiple sclerosis. How is it that, um, you know, how, how do we know that a family has, you know, this in their genetics? So MS is... Actually, the MS risk is made up of genetic factors, lifestyle factors like smoking and obesity, and also environmental factors. But families with a high incidence of MS are actually really rare. So we actually classify the families as having three first-degree relatives having MS within a single family. Hmm. And what the stem cells got to do this? Because I understand that this is a part of the mechanism for determining what's going on. Yes, so we predict that in the families with the high incidence of MS, the genetic component of their risk is actually enriched compared to more sporadic cases of MS. So by creating stem cells, which involves just taking a simple blood sample and then putting them in culture, we actually infect them with a virus to make them a special called a, a special type of stem cell called an iPSC. We can act, these cells actually have the full genetic component that the donor has. So we can study the genetics from the people in cells. Mm. And over how many generations do you normally see this? Is it just one to the next or have you seen this over like three or four generations? How protracted is it? Uh, The families that we have currently enrolled here are generally across two or three generations, but it would definitely be interesting if we found families with uh, more generations. It makes it much easier to study. Indeed. Fascinating stuff, Alistair. Good luck with that ongoing work. MS is such an important area of study. And I know we've made a lot of progress over the recent decades, but there's still so many people affected by it. So keep up the good work there at the University of Tasmania. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Mars Butterfield Addison, also from the University of Tasmania. Good morning, Mars. How are you going? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. Now, we know there's a lot of space debris out there, but apparently uh, we don't have enough radars to track it all. And you're looking at the possibility of essentially reconfiguring our ground-based telescopes to, to look a lot closer than they're designed to do. Tell us about that. Well, to track all the space junk that we have out there, we kind of need telescopes all over the world. They need to be able to see all different parts of the sky. But we also need enough of them that they can keep track of the increasing numbers and the increasing mass in orbit. So right now we've got like over 100 million fragments of debris in orbit. And because of the way that orbits change by dragging on the atmosphere and by having solar winds and by bumping into each other, all these things change everything's orbits. We actually need to re- identify everything and retrack their orbit and recalculate their trajectories about once a day per every object. That's a lot of things to find. That's a lot of sensors we need. Yeah. <laughs> Way faster than we can build radars. And presumably these these objects are every now and then whacking into each other as well, which makes the situation even more complicated. Is that right? Yes. And sometimes even intentionally, where over the years we've had quite a few anti-satellite tests. Quite famously, uh, the Russians did one in November without warning anybody. And the US got up in arms and was like, we should have laws for this, even though the US has done more of those than anyone else. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and what, what does this mean in terms of just where we put things? You know, things like the International Space Station and the Hubble Space Telescope, you know, presumably they're in relatively free orbits. But, you know, going into the future, we're doing more and more. Um, you know, we're launching rockets to the moon and Mars. I mean, what does that mean in terms of safety? Well, it means that even when we put things in space, for a long time we thought space is big, things won't end up near each other, but actually things tend to end up in certain orbits. And also the way that we need to use things means that we need to put things in certain orbits. We have things that are very close 
to the Earth because we want them for communications. We want the signal travel time to be as low as possible. Or we have things that are like out at a distance where they orbit at the same speed as we rotate because we need it to stay over mm. the same point on the Earth. Or we have these crazy orbits that go down over the South Pole really fast and then really high over the North Pole, which is a bunch of the northern hemisphere communication satellites because they want to stay over the north a lot more. And so there aren't really any free orbits among those things that we need the most because, of course, every time we need a new thing in there, everyone else did too. They're the same very popular orbital regimes. Uh, sounds like we've wrecked space as well. Thanks, Mars. Get those telescopes up there, tracking them all, and hopefully there'll be a, a better place for everyone. Thanks, Shane. Dina Pognaboy is from Newcastle University. Good morning, Dina. Good morning, Shane. Thanks so much for coming online. Now, you're working in an area which I, I have to say, you know, many of us who have family members who have been affected by this, uh, you know, deeply concerned about, but helping stroke survivors to reduce the risk of another stroke. I think this is something that whenever someone leaves a hospital having had a stroke, the biggest thing on their mind in many regards, depending on their recovery, is, you know, when will this, if if this happens again, when will this happen again? What can I do to avoid it? So, you know, what what's involved there? How do you sort of make sure we reduce that risk of another stroke? Thanks so much, Shane. Yeah, look, the, the work we're doing is hoping to help stroke survivors uh, reduce their risk of stroke. And we want to make sure that we provide stroke survivors with resources that are available free online and are accessible for all stroke survivors, irrespective of their level of disability after stroke. Um, we know stroke survivors get told to move more and eat well after stroke when they leave hospital, but we also know how difficult that is uh, when mm. they get home. So our research is around trying to create something that will make sure stroke survivors have access to fit-for-purpose resources, and we're trying to design those with stroke survivors to meet that target. Right. Yeah, it's so good to have the consumers involved in, in that design, and mm. presumably that has to vary significantly depending on the person's individual circumstances and their support mechanisms. You know, some people will be alone, whereas others will have family members everywhere. You know, that, that has to come into it, right? Absolutely. And and that's what we're trying to do. So the website that we're designing uh, is trying to capture as many uh, stroke survivors from different levels of disability, different ages, because we know that they all have different needs. And what we're wanting to create is resources where a stroke survivor goes on the website and they see somebody that looks like them and therefore they can um, feel like they can relate to that content. Yeah. And will will that link in with any other services once it's sort of completed? Yeah, we're very lucky. We, we've got a partnership with the Stroke Foundation and, and they're very heavily supporting this work. So once the website is created, it will be piloted and then it will live on the Stroke Foundation website. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. Um, having family members in that situation, I know how difficult that is. And often it's it's often difficult for people just to work out what has changed in, in their bodies and their brains and everything else after a stroke. So, um, you know, ambulance wait times are a little rough at the moment. So good, good luck with that. We need it more than ever. Thanks so much, Dina. Thanks so much. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Sophie Nidaslutsky from the University of British Columbia in Canada. Hi, Sophie. How are you going? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Good. And it's great to have you all the way from Canada. Thanks for joining us. I know it's a big walk to the Zoom call, you know, like from whichever room you've been before, but we do appreciate that. Now, you're working, you're working on trees in cities, and this is something that we hear a lot about at the moment. What we don't hear about, though, is the idea of using drones to, to monitor how we go about decisions around urban forests. Tell us about how you're using drones to do this. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Drones fill a potentially really important gap in urban forest management. Often managers and practitioners have a really hard time getting at kind of fine scale, detailed information about urban forests and trees happening at more local levels. And so what we're testing is different types of drones to get at how they can help managers manage all aspects of the urban forest and all aspects of the processes involved. So tree inventorying, um, understanding size, and configuration potentially in parks and also the benefits the trees provide to people, particularly given the impacts of climate change. Yeah. How much data do the drones collect for you? I think most of us have this image of drones collecting video data, but is there anything else beyond that that they're collecting as well? Absolutely. And they actually collect a fair amount more than we might realize. So we can fly them in different patterns and grid shapes across different areas. So for example, I'm flying in parks and we can get at data like canopy cover, tree size, crown size, even amount of shading. And depending on the sensor that you have on your drone, you can even get at elements of canopy health. So how healthy are particular trees at a particular time? And what's great about drones is that, you know, depending on weather conditions, you can basically shoot them up and fly them 
whenever you like to get a snapshot of what's going on. It's fantastic. When you introduce yourself at the pub, do you call yourself a drone pilot or a environmental researcher, an ecologist? I call myself a drone pilot, of course, <laughs> and I am actually. I've had lots of fun, fun flying drones across uh, Vancouver. Yeah, look, that's fantastic. I can imagine the no, no, no comparison for getting out there in, in amongst it, but um, I'm sure it's a lot of fun collecting that data. And we see drones being used for everything from collecting whale snot to looking at urban forests at the moment. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us all the way from Canada. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, next up, our fifth PhD in our 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program is Katrina Geldard from Southern Cross University. Good morning, Katrina. Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you work in this scary area of antimicrobial resistance that we've been we've been talking about for decades. Um, I learned just recently that you know the death toll in a year is in the millions from from this problem. But you're you're working in particular in the area of herbal medicines and some of the impacts there. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, yes, um, because uh, the problem is mainly from antibiotic overuse, then I'm trying to use, uh, reduce the need for antibiotics and to come up with a plan B with herbal medicines. <laughs> so instead of trying to kill the bacteria or stop them replicating like we do with antibiotics, we can actually reduce infection in other ways. So with herbal medicine, um, I'm a trained naturopath, so I'll be looking at what naturopaths use to successfully manage bacterial infections in practice and I'll test them in the lab because they can do other things like uh, interrupting the special language that um, bacteria use within these biofilms to communicate with each other and be more virulent or the bacteria and biofilms make a special shell that don't let antibiotics in so we can break down that shell with herbs. Mm. Um, We can change the bacteria back to individual ones, not in a community, or they stop the bacteria attaching to the host. All right. We're losing you a little bit there, Katharina. We're almost out of time anyway, but it sounds super interesting. And I know um, the information you sent through indicated that urinary tract infections account for some 15% of all antibiotics prescribed, which is a very large amount. So, I'm, and often better. Ah, okay. Thanks, Katharina. We lost you for a little bit there, but it's all good. Next up is David Zhang. David, can you hear me? Sorry, you're frozen. I'm very sorry. Uh, that's Okay. All righty. David, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Yes. Thanks, David. Good morning, Shane. Um, David Zhang is from La Trobe University, and he's working on placenta stem cell therapies to improve stroke cognitive outcomes. David, are you pumping stem cells into people's brains? What exactly does this mean? Um, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So um, what we do is that we uh, obviously get the permission of the mothers who recently given birth to babies, and then we take their placentas, and then we essentially um, IV inject, so intravenously inject them into animals. And the whole idea behind that is basically these stem cells uh, not only circumvent the sort of traditional ethical concerns of stem cell therapy, but um, they also have anti-inflammatory properties and stem cells have the ability to proliferate and differentiate to different kinds of cells. So in stroke, uh, when someone has a sort of brain injury, they lose millions of brain cells every hour. Um, and so hopefully these stem cells will replace those, those stem cells will replace those brain cells, but also um, induce sort of anti-inflammatory and antioxidative effects. And David, we, we know that cells take time to proliferate and actually, you know, when a stem cell creates itself into a cell type, you know, this is, this is something that takes time. I mean, what, what's involved there in the brain? Because the brain is so complicated with all the different structures that it has. I mean, how, how does it do that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, when we think about the brain after a stroke, you don't, it's not necessarily just losing physical real estate. But there's also this sort of domino effect of this sort of pro-inflammation and pro-oxidation, which in the coming weeks and months can lead to sort of this altering of brain remodeling. And that can affect cognition and lead to neurodegenerative diseases. So in the coming sort of weeks and months, that's where the stem cells sort of hang around in brain injury and hopefully, um, you know, improve outcomes for cognition and function as well. Yeah. Now, you mentioned doing this in animals. Are we a fair way off uh, human trials at this point? Um, actually, the work that I'm doing now is kind of on the uh, on the backs of giants where this is sort of already in clinical trials. I'm sort of expanding the parameters and um, the use of these stem cells. Mm. So, yeah, it's actually pretty promising therapy at the moment. Great. Thanks, David. Great work. Uh, David Zeng there from La Trobe University. Up next is Alanis Olish-Byrne from James Cook University. Alanis, can you hear us? 
Yes. Hi, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Now, you work in the area of you know, rare earth elements. In other words, elements that there aren't much of floating around, right? This is the sort of stuff that we, I mean, where do we find these things in our devices, in our phones, presumably, and a lot of the solar panels, things that we strive towards having more of? Is that right? Yeah, so um, while the name says rare, they're actually quite abundant in the crust. Um, the thing that is rare about rare earth elements is finding them in a concentrated amount. So in mm. any rock you pick up, you will find a rare earth element, but we just can't find them in like a bulk um, supply. And we use these rare earth elements in everything from an electric car to a solar panel to wind turbines, um, our phones. Um, so yeah, we use them in pretty much everything we use. Yeah, and in terms of the crust, I mean, how do you... You know, I know what one of the things you're studying there is how they move through the crust. I mean, what what sort of forces and dynamics and that are involved in that? I think a lot of us have this image of the crust being a, a stable thing, but presumably not. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the crust is obviously plate tectonics, so we've got parts of the Earth moving, parts of the Earth subducting, parts of the the Earth um, colliding together. Um, and what I'm looking at is how exactly rare earth elements get from um from the source to the deposit. So how do they get from um, site A to site B? Um, and they can do this through so many different types of things, but most of the time it's through big cracks in the earth, um, shearing in the earth, so just the earth moving and then allowing fluids that contain these rare earth elements to pass through those rocks. Yeah, once we know that, does that help us go looking for them? Yeah, exactly. So we need to understand how exactly these rare earth elements work and how they move through the crust so then we can better predict where we can find these deposits. Um, and we'll need them in the future because if we want to meet um, the Paris ag- Agreement, which is um, net zero by 20, um, 2050, um, we need to find around six times as many rare earth elements and critical minerals. Wow, six times what we currently have. Or- yeah, exactly. So we need to try and meet... Um, meet demand so our supply needs to try and meet our demand which is quite high at the moment yeah that's a scary figure six times well thank you so much alana good luck finding those it sounds like we all need them (laughs) thank you so much thank you uh next up our eighth phd uh student today folks is yasmin doust from the wicking dementia research and education center at the university of tasmania Good morning, Yasmin. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. Now, you're looking at traumatic brain injuries and surprise, surprise, uh, some of the information coming out seems to indicate that females experience more severe symptoms compared to males. This, geez, this is such a surprise. It's not like women ever get affected more negatively with regards to issues of healthcare than, than men. Tell us about what's happening there. Yeah, so um, traumatic brain injury is an injury to the brain as a result of a trauma, like an impact to the head or the head moving back and forth, like when someone experiences whiplash. And um, most people probably think about traumatic brain injury or the mild version of traumatic brain injury, which is a concussion. Um, Being associated with men and playing sport and things like that, that's how Mm. it's usually... Um, most heard about, but females do also sustain traumatic brain injuries and they report experiencing more severe symptoms that, and they take longer to recover. And we currently don't know why this is the case. So my research is looking into the brain to see whether there's any biological differences that can provide evidence for this. Mm. And presumably there's also, as you say, there, there may be a bit of a different uptake in terms of medical care with some of those injuries and the way that happens. Um, I, I have a very very good friend who who had a very severe concussion and and you know that led to a number of different health issues which took quite a while to address definitely and i think at the moment we've only really got um uh questionnaires at the moment of diagnostic criteria but we don't really have any ways to be able to look into the brain and really measure how this recovery is taking place yeah so what's next um hopefully we'll we'll be able to find some differences in the brain that we may be able to target therapeutically so that we can help improve recovery for both males and females after a traumatic brain injury. Sounds good to me, Yasmin. Thanks so much for doing that work and uh, for coming on the show today. Thanks, Shane. Next up is YC Lynn from Australian National University in Canberra. Good morning, YC. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to you. Now, you work on something that I I have to say, you know, I've had a lot of guests on this show over the last 30 years, and this is one that we haven't touched on, but it's the the little molecular machines in our body that actually convert the physical forces we feel into sensations. I mean, this is wild stuff. Tell us about how that works. 
Yeah, absolutely. So these molecular machines that I'm talking about are actually called piezoproteins, and they live on the surface of the trillions of cells that make up your body. They act a bit like a gate, and so they open in response to physical forces, things like a touch sensation or sound vibrations or blood flow through a vein to let things come in and out of a cell. Mm. And are we able to sort of control them? Are there scenarios where they stop functioning for people that they need repair? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So these proteins are absolutely super important. They play roles in blood pressure regulation, in bone development, in sensing touch and proprioception, which is knowing where all of the limbs in your body are placed in time um, and space and time. And so when they don't work properly, it leads to diseases. Um, And so what we're trying to do in my PhD is kind of study how they work normally using computer simulations so that we can work out what to do when they're not working properly. Yeah, cool stuff. And when you do those those models, is it a single cell or a single part or are you looking at the system? How does, how does the modeling sort of cater for all that? Yeah, that's a great question. So the computer simulations that I use act like a really, really powerful microscope, allowing us to zoom right in and look at like one protein at a time and kind of see what's going on at the atomistic level, giving us, yeah, a lot of insight into what's happening there. Very cool stuff. YC, thanks so much for joining us uh, from Canberra. I hope it's not too cold up there. I know it gets chilling. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Next up is Himradi Saini from the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Himradi. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me here. Now, you are looking at this thing uh, that I've looked into before. It's fascinating, this idea of how iron depositions in our oceans change, essentially have a a sort of feedback loop effect in terms of our climate and what phytoplankton does. Tell us about what's happening there. I mean, especially historically with regards to glacial climates and what iron actually does when it's deposited in the ocean. So uh, what is happening is right now our biggest concern is the rising CO2 levels, which is at about 420 ppm right now. But in the past, like before pre-industrial, it varied only between 180 to 280 ppm. Mm -hmm. And my research is when it was 180 ppm. So why it was such... Uh, why it was such a lower amount. So what happened in one of the aspects was this, that because uh, the, the glacial climate, particularly the last glacial maximum, which happened around 20,000 years ago from now, it was a lot drier. And that's why there was a lot of air dust coming into the Southern Ocean, which brought iron element into the ocean. Mm. And for marine phytoplankton, iron is one of the limiting nutrients for their diet. So when there was a lot of iron, their productivity bloomed. And when that bloomed, so the uptake of carbon by the plankton bloomed. And when they excrete carbon, it goes into the deeper ocean layers. So it takes the carbon from the atmosphere and it brings into the ocean, which is the largest reservoir of carbon. Yeah. So that reduced the atmospheric CO2 level. Yeah, so we, ba- so we basically need to make sure our iron levels are just right, our oceans are healthy, and then that'll be a good uh, sort of part of the solution to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Yeah, that that's tricky because it takes about thousands of years to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, another reason why we shouldn't produce so much CO2. Um, Imradi, thanks, yes. thanks so much. Just before you go, do you actually go out into the ocean and, and check this out yourself or do you send other people to get it? Uh, no, I would love to, but uh, my part is only computer simulations, but I compare my simulated data, uh, results with the data uh, with people who actually go to Antarctica and everybody loves going to Antarctica. Of course, of course. Haven't, haven't been there, but people that I know go, who've been there send me a lot of photos, which is really cruel, um, but they do yes. it all the time. Yeah, it's great. Can't wait to get there one day. Um, Himradi, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Folks, we have gone through the first 10 PhDs in our 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. We're doing our 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program at the moment, and we have already interviewed... 10 people, believe it or not, goes fast. Uh, and now we're up to number 11. Sarah Dart is from the University of Western Australia. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Sorry to get you up so early. Um, I realize a couple of hours behind there for you over in, in WA. You're working on immunosuppressive medication and what is essentially required after a, an organ transplant. But um, essentially, this is a tough process on the body. Tell us what's happening with the organs when we, when we, give, us, you know, we give a person these immunosuppressive drugs. Yeah, so after um, an organ donation, you need immunosuppression because um, your body doesn't really know what's going on. Um, and 
a new organ is something that the body considers as, as foreign or un, not self, and so it will react to it in the same way that it would react to an infection or um, or yeah, anything like that. Um, but at the same time, having those immunosuppressive drugs in your system, which we need, um, dampens your immune response to other things that happen as well. So you don't have as good a response to um, other bacterial infections or um, viral infections like COVID and also cancer as well. Mm. And the immunosuppression that we do there, it, it, is it pretty broad? Is it like a bit of a sledgehammer approach at the moment? Yeah, so there's a lot of different types of immunosuppressive drugs that are used. And um, unfortunately for most uh, transplant recipients, you do need at least three or four at a time, um, and that can also be lifelong. So it is a bit of a sledgehammer approach at the moment. Um, yeah. Mm. And is is there a way to sort of better manage this? Is there a way that we can sort of, I guess, I suppose, dial down the, the level of immunosuppression drugs we use? Yeah, so there's a lot of different uh, work looking at how we can um, improve our use of immunosuppression. And the work that uh, we're, my group's doing in particular um, is looking at the effects of immunosuppression on the immune cells that are transplanted within an organ um, because those cells um, can play really important roles in um, protecting tissues from infections and cancer. Um, they're called tissue-resident cells. Uh, so we're looking at how we can manipulate the use of immunosuppression to improve uh, the health of those immune cells and fight infections that way. Yep, sounds good. And as you say, like all the things that we need our immune systems for get switched off during that process. So managing that better is uh, is something that's really important. Sarah, thank you so much for chatting to us today. Thanks so much. Next up is Tuani Costa de Lima. Good morning, Tuani, from the University good of... Good morning, Shane. The Australian National University. How are you going? <laughs> good morning, Shane. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Now, you work in this super cool area where essentially you use earthquakes to map the Earth's inner core. Now, tell us how that works. How do you use earthquakes to map the core? Um, so, uh, doing my PhD, investigating the physical properties of the Earth's inner core, and the inner core is this solid spherical body located in the center of our planet. There's no way we can um, um, sample it. There's no way we can photograph it. The only way we can study its properties are, is based on large earthquakes. So, we use data from large earthquakes. Uh, these earthquakes um, generate energy um, that sample the structure of the inner core and carry information along the way. So we detect this information uh, with equipment, um, and that's how we study the inner core. So now this means you have to wait for earthquakes to come along, presumably. Sorry? You, you have to wait for earthquakes to come along to be able to do your work. Yes, yes. We do need a lot of earthquakes around the globe. But the good thing is uh, my PhD, we developed a method um, that's based on the correlation weight field, which means that we uh, measure the similarity of very tiny signals um, that are present in the records of earthquakes that have happened from, I don't know, 20 years ago or mm. so. And uh, we actually obtain a very prominent signal uh from the inner core that is otherwise not easily observed at all. So, yeah. Yep. And what are we learning about the core? I understand you use the term innermost inner core. Yes. So, during my PhD, we um, developed this method that I mentioned based on the similarity of our waveforms, and we confirmed the existence of the innermost inner core structure within the inner core, and this has some implications for our understanding of the evolution of the core. Yeah. Is it changing? Like, does it, is it really dynamic? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there are some geodynamical models that have been proposed uh, to explain this variation in the anisotropic property, um, which is the, very, uh, the variation, uh, the dependence of uh, the direction of certain uh, property. Hmm. And it could be related to some thermal convection uh, changes um, or uh, variation in the... Um, um, deformation pattern over time, this could all lead to some preferential crystallization um, of the iron crystals in the inner core, just to find those yeah. in the most inner core. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. I mean, that's a pub, pub sort of discussion you want to have when people say, what do you do? I use earthquakes to map the inner core of the earth. <laughs> Drop <laughs> yes. your microphone and just walk off. Thanks, Joanie. Great stuff. Really interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Next up is Caitlin Farmer from Monash University. Good morning, Caitlin. Hi Shane, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. We, uh, it's interesting when we talk about uh, the scans we can do these days on human bodies. We can do X-rays, we can do CTs, we can do MRIs, all produced by you know us physicists, of course, that healthcare people get to use. Um, but they tell us so much, and it's so hard to interpret that. Now, my understanding from from your work is that there's a lot of over treatment occurring. What's causing that? Yeah, so 
scans are getting more and more common for back pain. Back pain is really common itself. And then uh, about one in four people get a scan of their back, but really probably about one in 10 should get a scan because there's some sign of serious disease. The problem with scans is that they show lots of things that are the normal age-related changes that we get as we get older. Unfortunately, we get grey hair and wrinkles as we get older and the same thing happens to our bones and joints and discs in our back. And uh, the problem is that those things are reported on a scan, but they're not uh, given context that they're normal findings. Yeah, and how much does that depend on the sort of the radiographer in you know that particular radiographer and what sort of things they report and the way they report it? Is that all standardised, or is there a bit of room for interpretation there as to how bad things are or how things look? So there is a bit of a shift in the radiology sort of environment towards standardising, and there's some evidence that uh, clinicians prefer standardised templates for reporting. These don't necessarily include context, like saying that it's a normal age-related change that people shouldn't be worried about. You know, we often find things like disc bulges and people get really concerned about them and they're actually really normal and mm. unlikely to be causing them any problems. Yeah. And, and, and like, should these reports be readable by the consumers or are they things that should only be able to be interpreted by your doctor? That's a really interesting question and it, and the opinion differs depending on who you are. So radiologists would say that they report the um, imaging for the clinician and uh, um, patients would expect to have their own reports and to be able to understand them. Clinicians often don't understand them as radiologists intend anyway. So there's a little bit of a communication mismatch along the sort of chain that we're trying to fix. Yeah, and presumably if you get that right, that will lead to fewer procedures and fewer concerns with regards to many of the things that we see in these scans. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be really nice if we can uh, decrease people's worry about their scans. Yep. I'm just worried about getting the scan now after hearing about this. I'm just going <laughs> to ignore everything unless they tell me it's urgent. I'm not sure. That's probably not good advice for anyone out there. Caitlin, oh, thanks. well, look, uh, yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't need it probably most of the time <laughs> if you've got back pain. <laughs> yep. Sounds good, Caitlin. Uh, thanks so much for that. Good luck with the ongoing work. It's important that we get all this thanks stuff right. Thanks a lot, Shane. Yep. Uh, next up is Asher Kirk from Monash University and Alfred Health. Good morning, Asher. Good morning, Shane. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to have you on. Now, you look at uh, similar stuff in a way to what Caitlin was just talking about, but serious orthopedic surgery and sort of what the result of different activity levels are after that surgery. What, what sort of surgeries are we talking about? Yeah, so I work, I'm one of the physios at the Alfred and I work on the trauma unit. So essentially people with broken bones, so either a single broken bone or multiple broken bones. Um, We know people in hospital do very little activity, but we don't know people who have a broken bone, how much activity they do in hospital, but also when they leave hospital and go Mm. home. Yeah. Is it is it likely that they do a lot less when they go home because they don't have that support of physiotherapists and and other clinicians in their home? Yeah. So this hasn't been studied in people um, with broken bones, but we did a systematic review that actually showed people do more activity at home. Um, mm-hmm. And evidence in this population actually shows people's outcomes are better within the home. But So we're going to use activity monitors that actually track people when they're in hospital and when they go home to see if um, activity levels can actually influence their outcomes. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds likely that they would, but is there any suspicions that actually too much activity, you know, might actually sort of put them back a bit in their recovery if they're pushing things beyond what is sort of clinically appropriate? Yeah. So it also comes back to the injury that they've got. But I think um, we've had some studies from physios at the Alfred in hip fracture and trauma patients who show intensive physio actually improves outcomes and reduces hospital length of stay. So. Mm. Um, this is really, really important. And I think the hospital resources are really valuable and it's in the news at the moment. So um, I think what we should be doing is trying to get some evidence to really uh, make sure the resources are, are used to improve patient outcomes. Yeah, indeed. And Asha, just finally, how do you how do you track this stuff remotely? Um, so we've got some activity monitors that we will fit patients on when they're at the Alfred and we'll leave them on for their, their hospital admission and also when they go home. Um, and then they will send it back to us for us to analyse the data. Sounds good. Sounds like a really good connectivity between the you guys there at the hospital and patients out in the home too. And it brings to bear, you know, one of these things that we hear every now and then, but we don't see a lot of where the hospital walls come down a bit and connect out into the into the community, which is great. Yes, that's right. Thanks so much, Shane. Great. Thanks for chatting to us, Asha. Uh, next up is Liana Theodorus. Um, Liana, can you hear me? 
Yes, yes, all good. Now, you're from the Cavallo Lab at La Trobe University and dealing with the big issue worldwide of anti-malaria um, potential of drugs and making sure that we have the right drugs to deal with this ongoing scourge of the earth. But you're looking at a new type of drug. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, so I'm working with this entirely novel uh, drug class, which we call 3D heterospirocyclic compounds, which uh, gets its name from in the compounds that I'm looking at, instead of laying flat on the same plane, the core of the compound's twisted in a spiral shape. So it kind of looks like fusilli pasta. So that's where the 3D and spiral comes into the name. Um, and the compounds from this drug class, um, because of their structure, are a little bit um, have a high efficacy and potency towards their drug target, which make them really, really interesting compounds to look at for hmm. malaria. Are, are these sort of off-target off drugs from something else that have been generated before for, for a different task? No, no. So um, our chemist collaborator just synthesized them one day, came to us and said, hey, do you want to just test them on your parasites? And we oh, said, wow. <laughs> but yeah, sure, why not? And we see two of them that have actually worked relatively quite good and you know we've tested them on a whole bunch of drug resistant parasite strains just to make sure that they're actually working against the resistant parasites that we're currently experiencing in the world um, and they actually have been working on a variety so so far they're looking pretty good yeah fantastic and do they look likely to have sort of better longevity than the existing drugs because i know you know we get this resistance creeping up over time is there any expectations there Look, we're so early days, we're mm. not sure. And malaria parasites are really pesky things and they have a knack of getting resistant to literally everything that we throw at them. So I don't know, we, we're really not too sure at this stage. Yep. Well, look, it's worth a crack and getting any of these new drugs out into the into the space where we can use them for malaria, I think is really important. It's such a, a terrible thing that um, hurts and kills so many people around the world. Liana, keep on it. Good luck. And thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gogo. Thanks for having me on. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You are listening to Einstein and Go-Go. We're in the 20 and 20 program today. We're interviewing a bucket load of PhD students. And the next one we have is actually in the studio with me, which is a great pleasure because that was how this started back in 2019 until someone spread the virus around and we had to start doing it all over Zoom. Uh, Danielle Wallace is from the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the studio, Danny. Hi, Shane. Thanks so much for having me in person. It's, it's an honour. It's great. It's great. And thanks for doing that, Rat. Of course, you doing the foyer before you came in. Uh, now, you work on frogs and, of course, this scourge of the, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, citrid fungus. Chitrid fungus? Chitrid. Uh, Chitrid, yes. fungus. I always get that wrong every time I, I talk <laughs> Try about the this. scientific name. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> it's even I worse. I will not. I will not. But apparently, Victorian frogs, according to you, are responding to this be, by becoming sexier. Tell us all about that. So, this is kind of like the polar opposite of what we expected. So you kind of think like any animal when it gets infected with the disease, you want to focus on getting better, fight the infection. Whereas we actually found that infected animals were actually breeding more to kind of compensate for this disease. So chucking immunity out the window and focusing on breeding more and like passing on their genes to the next generation. So yeah. I like to say going out with a bang. Right. It's a pun. <laughs> okay. Well, the kids listening to the show. Uh, all good. Now, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because, I mean, we think about this and we're conscious and we're, we're very aware of these choices. You know, if you're feeling like crap and you dress up and you go out to a nightclub to give everyone COVID, you know, it's a choice, right? But um, frogs are not as cognitively aware and, and biologically they make choices in terms of energy distribution. Do we have any idea why they're making this choice? Is this just like an evolutionary trait that's beneficial? Yeah, so it's really bizarre. We don't actually know whether this change is because of the fungus kind of controlling the frog and making it appear more sexy to other mm. frogs or if it's a it's a physical choice by the frog to follow this through. So that's kind of the next stage of my research. But at this stage, I'm focusing on a cute little frog called the alpine tree frog. So they live way up in the Alps. And we found that when healthy male, oh, sorry, when males get infected, they're more colourful than uninfected males. So this is making them sexier to females. Very good. And just confirming, these are just Victorian frogs that are sexier, is that? We haven't. So this is the first time we've ever found this before. So it's really interesting. So kind of the next step as well is looking at other frogs in Victoria. So I was very yeah. ambitious and have chosen about five species to try this next with. Sorry, New South Wales. 
But <laughs> look, that's great stuff, Danny. It's really interesting. It's interesting to see how a different species is reacting to a to a disease like this by wanting to breed more and just push through. Uh, amazing stuff. Thankfully, humans didn't do too much of that during the last two years, or we'd have some population explosion. Yes, I guess they didn't have the opportunity. <laughs> no, we didn't have the opportunity. Thanks so much, Danny. Great to talk Thanks to you. So much, Next up is Jenna Hall from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Jenna. Shane, lovely to look at your oh, face. Sorry, I'm just going to turn your microphone on. This is what happens when you haven't had people in the studio <laughs> for two years. Uh, <laughs> great to have you in the studio. Now, you're working on the area of um, macular degeneration in the eye. Firstly, just tell us what's happening there. What, what's that disease? Yeah, so age-related macular degeneration, or AMD, is the most common form of irreversible blindness amongst people over 50 in Western communities. And on a cellular level, we see the retinal pigment epithelium, or RPE, degeneration. And that is my cell type of interest that I am studying. Right. And and what does that mean in terms of degeneration? Like what's happening to those cells? Yeah. So you start to lose the high detailed central resolution vision in AMD when the photoreceptors in the cone dense region of the macula start to die. And we see that photoreceptor death when that RPE starts to degenerate. It doesn't clear out all of the gunk that the photoreceptors produce. Mm. Um, And so they die because they are unhappy. Yeah. And does this take a long time for this sort of the disease to progress or is it something that happens overnight? Yeah, yeah. So it's age-related. So definitely mm. it happens in, in an older population and this takes years and years of insults to actually reach fruition. Yeah. Can we do anything about it? Yeah, so what I'm doing is using stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells, similar to Alistair, because they retain the complex genetic signatures and variants associated with AMD pathogenesis. And so I can use those cells and compare them to healthy controls to try to come up with novel treatments for blindness. Hmm. And I'm almost afraid to ask, but those treatments, do they involve like literally putting some of these replacement cells into the back of the eye? Yeah, yeah. Direct uh, injection is definitely one of the, or a couple of the clinical trials that are happening right now. Yeah, wow. It's amazing stuff. I think uh, if we can knock that one out, because that causes a lot of blindness across Australia and the world, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's the most common form. Yeah, excellent. Well, great. Not excellent. That's causing blindness. Excellent. You're doing the work. (laughs) Jenna, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you so much, Shane. Sadia Alvi is Next, from Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Uh, good morning, Selby. How are you going? Thank you, Shane. It's good to be here. Now, you're working on gut-related disorders. This is one of these areas I think doesn't get enough airtime, to be honest. You know, like think problems with the, the walls of our gut and things that are, you know, really, you know, they, they ruin people's lives. Like, people can't leave their homes. They're worried about what's going to happen. You know, all sorts of things that can result from that. T- tell us about your work in the gut. Um, so, my work is, uh, when we talk about gut, um, gut, I think it's, um, it's a second brain of the mm. uh, body as well. Um, and uh, disorders related to guts also linked with the psychological and distress issues that we often tend to experience. And then um, what my research is focusing on the um, IBS, that is irritable bowel syndrome, mm-hmm. uh, related to diarrhea. And um, so what we do, like naturally uh, in gut, uh, they releases natural um, opioids. Mm. And that's very important for the natural um, systematic uh, way of the gut to behave and have our function going on. Uh, but what happens in uh, physiological or under stress, uh, those opioids increase, the secretion of those opioids increase and that uh, dis, uh, that uh, make the balance out of the body. And that's where, um, so for IBSD, when we give the synthetic opioids, they also shift the balance out. And uh, because it's chronic disease, they also tend to make the situation worse by mm. causing constipation. Um, so we call them as the like synthetic drugs that we take on. Uh, we call them as on and off switches. So once you introduce into the body, they will just start um, acting on the uh, system and then it's hard to stop and it, you can't fine-tune them. Uh, so what my research is, we are working on a different binding site where um, synth- uh, compounds attach at a different binding site on the receptor level, but they work as a dimmer switch. That mm. means they can fine-tune um, the endogenous opioids that body releases. So we can increase uh, or we can um, modulate the response of the natural um, response of the body. And we can also um, fine-tune the response of the synthetic drugs that we administer to the body, which doesn't only uh, relate to the mm. gut-related disorders. It actually has the vast um, ap- uh, applications therapeutic to all the 
disorders yeah. that we are working yeah. with. Yeah, oh, look, that sounds, well as... sounds fantastic. And I think anyone who has IBS or any similar similar gut-related issues, uh, you know, they're so debilitating. They come on fast often and there's not a lot you can do. They're often related to anxiety as well that make them worse and then that makes anxiety. You know, it's, it's a vicious cycle and, you know, different foods, different things all, all affect it. So if we can get some control over that, that's fantastic. Sadia, thanks so much for being in the studio today. Thank you so much Great for to having have you. me. Laura Majis is from the Institute for Physical Activity and Nutrition in the School of Exercise and Nutrition Science at Deakin University. That's a mouthful, Laura. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me, Shane. I think you just sent more than everyone else, but that's <laughs> nice. I love the colleagues and friends down at Deakin. They're doing some great stuff. Now, you're working on plant-based diets. Um uh, dare I say, what's included in the plant-based diet? Yeah, it's a great question and a range of definitions have been used in research, mm. um, but it's generally understood that these are diets where most of your foods come from plant sources, so fruits, vegetables, whole grains, but you still may consume a small amount of animal foods okay. such as eggs, dairy or fish. My research, however, is unique as I won't be looking at one definition of a plant-based diet. Mm -hmm. I'll be looking at a whole spectrum of plant and animal foods being consumed and looking at how healthy the foods are as well. Right. It's it's interesting to me because we, we kind of automatically go there that plant-based diet's healthy, you know. Is, is that the case across the board? I mean, I'm assuming it's healthier than some other heavy meat-based diets, but how healthy are, are these diets? And, you know, I'm guessing they're not all the same. Great question. So I will try and contribute to this area by, first of all, looking at the plant-based diets Australians are actually eating mm -hmm. and by looking at their healthiness, so the amount of nutrients being consumed and the amount of junk food that's being consumed across this diversity of healthy and less healthy plant-based diets. Right. So I'll get back to you in a few years. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, I'm a big fan of apple pie. Is that considered a plant-based diet? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking that to the bank. Um, and is, is there a sort of recommendation for people overall or with regards to these diets? I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, with many of these diets, when we modify what we eat, we have to keep on top of our nutrient levels and I, I suppose regular testing to make sure we have what we need, yeah? I would say regardless of what name that you give your diet, just try and consume as healthy and as unprocessed as you can. Yeah. So try and stick into, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes and that sort of thing where possible. Yep. I'll get on that later today. Yep. <laughs> Laura, thanks, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thanks. It's great to hear about the stuff about different diets. Thanks for having me. And last but not least, uh, Courtney McLean. You realise you'll ask Courtney. <laughs> yes. Sorry about that uh, the Department of Psychiatry at the Central Clinical School at Monash University is where you're from, and you're looking similarly with diets around mm -hmm. veganism and and the impact of that. Again, we often think of veganism, we think of all the healthy elements of that, but there is a, a potentially problematic side. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I guess um, veganism can involve uh, a great deal of dietary restraint, um, and in some people, they may use that as kind of a socially acceptable way to camouflage large poor eating behaviours or pathological eating behaviours. Mm. Um, so that's where it can potentially be problematic in some people, but not all. Yep. And how do we sort of monitor that? Like how do we know that, you know, we're, we're getting onto that slippery slope of, yeah. of concern? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great question and that's uh, a lot of what my work is involved around is about developing evidence-based diagnostic options for vegans to specifically uh, screened for this. Um, so I guess wait lists for eating disorder treatment have really completely blown out since the start mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Right. So having a robust tool to screen for eating disorder symptoms is crucial for this population. So what's that, what, uh, pre-pandemic, what did that look like? Was that seeing a nutritionist after getting a referral from a GP? What does that process look like? Yeah, I mean, it depends um, how far along you are um, in your uh, eating disorder diagnoses. Um, in terms of weight restoration as well, how far along you are there. Um, so it can involve um, a group of people, a psychologist, dietitian, um, social worker perhaps, um, usually a team behind you. Mm. And um, how far into it before you can detect that there's a problem? Like, how, you know, this is one of these things I always worry about. They, they creep up on mm. people and mm. they kind of don't know that they're there. And, you know, how far in do you, do you have to be before we can sort of medically detect that something's going wrong? 
Yeah, well, I guess that's a great point in pulling apart disordered eating and eating disorders. So eating disorders are a clinical diagnosis, whereas uh, disordered eating is just kind of uh, perhaps some pathological way of eating. It could just be dieting in general or not eating after a certain time of the night. Um, and we can definitely screen for all of those. Um, mm. And the screener that I will develop will kind of have a threshold for um, generally needing uh, further support or going on to see a psychologist. Yep, very good. Well, hopefully we can get on top of these things in the, I guess, the way we were before the pandemic when we had Absolutely. more resources available, but it's something that's pretty important to a lot of people and eating disorders are no small matter with regards mm. to the health of individuals and their future. Thank you, Courtney. Thank, Thank you. you for being our last member of the 20 and 20 today, folks. You've been listening to 20 PhDs talk about their research over the last, uh, I don't know, 45 minutes. I gave them all about a minute. I took about a minute to question them. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. I just sort of grab a couple of our PhD students and strap them to the chairs here while they're in the studio and, uh, and uh, check how they were going on their PhDs, Danielle. How's it going? Are you how far through are you? I'm about a year and a half, two years. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. I started right smack bang in the middle of COVID, which I don't recommend at all. Yeah. Um, so I actually started part time, which was nice. So I've got a bit more time kind of up my sleeve, but it's definitely been a hard slog. Yeah, say that. yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, COVID PhD is a very different place to start. I couldn't imagine it. Couldn't imagine it. Exactly. You know, back back in my day. They were easy. <laughs> they were easy. So easy. Yeah. What about you, Courtney? Um, I am a year and a half in as well, so about halfway right. halfway through. Yeah. And did this change the sort of course of your PhDs? Like, did it change the direction they were going to go in perhaps originally versus what you ended up doing? Or I was pretty lucky. It didn't really change kind of the trajectory of my research. It kind of just delayed things, which is kind of worse. Mm. So for me, I was, I'm a field ecologist, so I go out yeah. chasing my frogs. So I couldn't get out into the field for six months. So it's kind of just pushed everything back a little bit further. So I just spent like six months twiddling my thumbs being like, I could be out chasing frogs, but I, I can't. Right. Where do you chase the frogs? I'm up at Mount Hotham oh. and then all around East Gippsland. So I, yeah, definitely the best job. That's, I was going to say, that's tough. <laughs> yeah, that exactly. Tough, you know, just, exactly. So do you chase your frogs on skis? Is that oh, how yeah, it I wish. It did, it did snow the last time we were there, which is like in November, which yeah. is very not okay. Yeah, we yeah. had like all our gear on. It was like minus four. I'm trying to catch a frog in like so many layers of padding. But um, oh, wow. yeah, it's yeah. definitely a lot of fun. Yeah, amazing stuff. And Courtney, less interesting, I guess, at the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, surprisingly, no, my COVID hasn't pushed out my PhD work right. too much. Um, I'm able to do a lot of focus groups and one-on-one and -on -one interviews via Zoom, which has been really awesome, um, and also collecting data in terms of like surveys as well, so just pushing those out into the world and seeing what I get. Cool. Well, look, hopefully both of you will finish up relatively soon and, you know, everything will be fantastic. And in 20 years' time, you'll have your own students and you'll say, you think you've got it done. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. We did ours yeah. during the pandemic. And I, so I used to say that to my students all the time. You know, you think you've got it tough. We were using <laughs> Word 2.0. Um, but it doesn't compare to what you guys are going through. So congratulations on getting as far as you have. And I know you'll finish and it'll be a big success. So, And thanks for chatting to us today on Einstein and GoGo. Thank you. Thanks so much, Shane. Folks, a huge thank you to the entire team that was on today, all 20 of our PhDs. Uh, they had to spend part of Saturday with me yesterday as well to prepare, and they've put a lot of work into making sure that this was all a big success, so a big thank you to them. And until next week, we will chat again about science. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic weekend, and we will chat in about just under seven days. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.